Welcome back to The Shorter, a podcast on the Shorter Catechism where two pastors take 20-something minutes to confess their way through the 107 questions of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I'm your host, Tommy Park, and I'm joined by my co-host, Stephen Spinnenweber. Welcome back to The Shorter, everybody. We are very happy to have you, and we're happy to have our guest today. He is the senior pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, Dr. David Strain, the man with the uh, wonderful Mississippi accent, we are very happy to have you with us. Thank you, fellas. It's good to be here with you. Yeah, well, thanks for doing this. Uh, first, just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe your background, family, and then you know just your ministry there at First, First Pres in Jackson. Yeah, so I was born and raised in Glasgow in central Scotland, and uh pastored in the Free Church of Scotland uh, congregation in central London for five years. And then uh, my family, my wife Sheena and my two boys moved to Columbus, Mississippi, which I need to come up with a more fantastical story of how I got there. But really, we had mutual friends who knew of that congregation. They were looking for a pastor. We were ready to move and it all sort of fell into place beautifully. We loved serving in Columbus. It was a very dear congregation and we were very settled there. And after about five years of ministry in Columbus, um, Derek Thomas, who was the Sunday evening preacher at First at First Pres, had moved on about a year before and the congregation were looking to replace him and also add a, a missions pastor slot to that role. And uh, they invited me to come and uh, at first, I really didn't, I thought it was a prank, you know, will you consider praying about this? Yes, yeah, sure. Lord, this is never going to happen, is it? Amen, um, was sort of how I responded. But I came uh, excited about being Ligon Duncan's assistant. And then within the year, Ligon was gone. He was the chancellor of RTS. And uh, then there was a search process, which was excruciating. Because, you know, I'm here the whole time. Other people are coming in and being interviewed. And I'm, I felt like I was being interviewed every single day for the whole time. Um, uh, but God saw fit to inflict me on the long-suffering people of First Pres as the senior minister. I've been here. I was, or, I was inducted to the role as senior pastor in 2014, in May, and uh, have loved... Uh, all of it. There have been constant challenges. It's been an incredibly steep learning curve, but the Lord has been very kind. The congregation have been very patient. The Lord has blessed his word, uh, and I'm extremely thankful. It's exciting to hear just God's providence. Um, as you know, this is a podcast on the Shorter Catechism. So oh. when, were, yeah, when were you first introduced to it? That's a great question. I've been trying to think about the answer. I I uh, I think a friend, I was converted, I was raised as a cradle Presbyterian in the mainline, the Church of Scotland, which is like the PCUSA, I suppose. So very liberal. Um, and so I was converted, I heard the gospel and came to faith through a Pentecostal friend um, in my early teens. And then when I went, I went off to college in the northeast of Scotland in Dundee, um, and while there, a Christian friend um, and I stumbled across Reformed theology. I kind of 
was still a charismatic and came across knowing God, you know, thinking that would be all about ecstatic experiences. And Packer just blew my mind with rich theology. That sent me, I, I, I left knowing God thinking I've, I've got to get a sense of the development of the history of Christian doctrine. I was looking for something short, not too long. I didn't know anything. I didn't know what the banner of truth was. I didn't know Reformed theology. I just went back to the goofy Christian bookshop with all the kind of crazy stuff on the shelves. And they had one little book, Lewis Burkhoff's History of Christian Doctrine. And I picked it up and went in one side of that book, a charismatic, Baptistic, dispensational, you know, left behind, late great planet Earth kind of guy and came out the other side a pers persuaded and convinced reformed presbyterian pedo baptist but of course now i'm now i'm looking for the westminster standards now i'm so and i dive into that and a buddy of mine and i began reading that and the sum of saving knowledge which in scotland was often bound with the confession and catechisms and you can still find editions like that and we just devoured that stuff and, and began reading it together in our probably in our first year in college. Uh, how have you seen the catechism being helpful for you personally, but also maybe even there at your church there at First Press? You know, I think for a lot of people in our tradition, our standards have become, you know, um, hoops to jump through, especially if you're training for the ministry or for office as an elder or a deacon. You know, you've got to know this stuff and read it and see you agree with it, but then you never have to think about it ever again. Um, it's a it's a sort of shibboleth, a thing that we use to to test people, to weed out the heretics. You know, um, and but for me, the confession and catechisms, both the larger and the shorter, have increasingly expressed with both wonderful theological precision. And I find that, I mean, it's often said that the, the catechism, uh, confession and catechisms are less pastoral than, say, the Heidelberg, but I know what they mean, but I actually find there to be a great deal of pastoral insight and wisdom and, and wonderful balance that I find to be spiritually nourishing. And I get excited about the truth here. My old uh, Donald McLeod, uh, taught me systematic theology and he used to say you should preach all the theology that you know and I agree with that I think if, if you have theological convictions that you can't preach either your convictions need to be revisited and further clarified uh, or you have you have a problem either theologically or you have a problem homiletically but you have a problem and I find that the theology and piety and practice expressed in the confession and catechisms is eminently preachable and helps me pray, uh, helps me live the Christian life, not driven just by emotion and feeling, but by truth that informs emotion and feeling. Um, and I've seen that play out in the life of our congregation to different degrees. We catechize all our children, both with first with the children's catechism when they're younger, and then with the shorter catechism. And uh, we still do sort of catechism recognition in our services when our kids recite the catechism verbatim from memory um, to an officer or a minister. Um, and we every year we have 
lots of kids do that. In fact, I have one scheduled very soon. Um, and that's thrilling to me. My, my uh, father-in-law, uh, who is a Highland, Scottish Highland Free Church of Scotland psalm singer, um, was taught the catechism as a child and resented it horribly. And then was converted as an adult. And all this truth that had been sitting like stores on the shelves gathering dust for all these years suddenly became vital. And he, he had categories already in place that helped him make sense of the scriptures and of the Christian life and understand preaching. It all, it all sort of clicked in and, and it was all there waiting for him. And that to me is really beautiful to watch. I like, I like Warfield's thing. You know, the story of Warfield, um, the Warfield tells about the two men in the railway station, in the busy station, and they catch each other's eye as they walk toward one another and they pass one another. And then they both stop and turn at the same time. And one walks up to the other one and puts his finger on his chest and says, what is the chief end of man? The other replies, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And he says, the first says, I knew you were a shorter catechism by your looks. And uh, I don't know if you can tell a shorter catechism guy by his looks or not, but there's something about that, isn't there? It has this subtle, pervasive way of informing how you view the world that is profoundly impactful. So do you have a favorite shorter catechism question? One that you go to? I don't know if I can give you just one. I, I pulled out my catechism. I, I, there's two that I, that I went to. I love, you know, what is God? I love who is the beam of God's elect just for their brevity, clarity, theological precision. But I, I really love question 37. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? The soul of believers are at their death. The souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness and do immediately pass into glory. And their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. And what has always helped me with that is their bodies being still united to Christ. So flesh and bones united to Christ. Still, all the time they're lying in the grave, their bodies are united to Christ. That's a very helpful corrective to the sort of platonic, the persistent Platonism that I run into all over the place that views the body as a prison for the soul and that, that, that denigrates the body and that sometimes is uncomfortable with things like being respectful of the remains of someone who's died, of revisiting the grave of someone that you love. And people will use the language of, that he's not here anymore, he's gone. Well, yes, and I know what they mean, and I would never correct someone who's grieving. But actually, a reformed, a biblical view of the human person affirms that we are psychosomatic unities. The body matters. And we are made to be embodied souls. Um, and and that, that sort of earthiness has been very helpful to me. I you often repeat that uh, question at the graveside when I do graveside funerals. I also love, if I can have two, 
yeah. I, I love I love eighty nine. How is the word made effectual to salvation? The the spirit of God maketh the reading, but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Here is a reformed theology of pulpit evangelism. Mm. Our, our preaching should be robustly, vigorously evangelistic because our theology of preaching is that God ordinarily, by his spirit, makes the word read and especially preached effectual in convincing and converting sinners. That's glorious to me. That's the only reason I'm able to climb the pulpit steps every Sunday. Yeah, no, that's good news. Uh, so today we're going to look at the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. Uh, and the reason we asked you to do this interview particularly is that I fell upon this, your article in the Gospel Coalition, and it's a series of three, presenting three different views on the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. Um, so a couple of questions. How did this series of articles come to be? And then why is it important to have this these types of discussions? Um, I, this is something the Gospel Coalition does from time to time. It will try to present a range of views within the bounds of, of sort of uh, fraternal discussions amongst like-minded Christians who share many convictions in common. And I, and I think they do that in an effort to demonstrate true Catholicity. So uh, true Catholicity does not mean minimizing important differences on secondary points. It does mean standing together on the essentials of the faith. And because we share that fundamental core unity and know that we can call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, we can then have very frank discussions about secondary and tertiary matters where we differ. So uh, one of those issues that that uh, evangelical and reformed Christians have debated and will doubtless continue to debate is the Sabbath. Others are things like baptism, church government, um, the views of the end times. Um, and so it's helpful, I think, that the Gospel Coalition would, would try to, to offer the range of opinion that's out there and, and it helps us engage for ourselves um, with with a range of opinion um and i i was asked because um other things that i'd written on this topic had come across people's desk and um, i was recommended as someone who could um, represent the sabbatarian confessional position um and was was eager to do that to take that opportunity so it was it was an exciting uh, project dr strain yeah I, when I became reformed, um, I immediately, I did not immediately come into a church where in the Sabbath day was a concept. Mm -hmm. And so like you talked about there, there is some diversity even within the reformed faith on the, what is the Sabbath day? Does it have abiding and continuing significance? So for a lot of our listeners, this might be the first time that they've ever considered the issue themselves. And so would you start us off by saying what the purpose of the Sabbath day is and what are we to do on the Sabbath day? That's good. Well, what the Sabbath day is for, what its purpose is, there's different ways to answer that. So there's a, an eschatological 
purpose or, or a redemptive historical purpose. In other words, when God gave the Sabbath day in creation at the dawn of history, it was designed to picture to our first parents the fullness of rest into which they would enter had they obeyed God perfectly. So the Sabbath was a little picture to them of, of, um, of, of global blessing, of, of the fullness of blessing that Adam would have ushered in had he passed the probation and obeyed the Lord and kept the covenant uh, of works. Um, and Adam, of course, ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We all sinned in him and fell with him in his first transgression. And, uh, and what's interesting, maybe even surprising, is that the Sabbath continues after the fall, um, which speaks to us of grace, doesn't it? That, that the rest, that new creation, that Eden restored and surpassed is still something God offers to sinners this side of the fall. Um, in the old covenant, it continued on the last day of the week, on, on the seventh day, um, because part of the design of God in the Mosaic economy, the Mosaic system, was to school his people and through them all of us on the basic functional principles of the gospel. That, that we cannot obey in order to obtain grace. And so the Sabbath is still at the end of a week of work as though to re reinforce in the regular rhythm of the week that that you know, work then rest, and yet there's more work to be done and, and still more after that, and rest is elusive. And that if you try to enter rest by means of works, you, you never, you'll never obtain it. But then the Lord Jesus comes, and on the first day of the week, the first day of creation, the day when light was made, the light of the world rose from the dead, bringing life and immortality to light, beginning new creation and ushering in new creation overlaid on top of the old creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is new creation. And, and, and now we rest. Uh, all who are weary and heavy laden come to me and I will I will, I will give you rest on the basis of my obedience. I have done what Adam did not, what Israel failed to do, what we all failed to do. I have done. I've obeyed the law of God perfectly, and I have secured Sabbath rest for all of my people. So that now on the first day, on the day of resurrection victory, we rest and we rest upon Christ, and then we work. We work out of our dependence upon Jesus, resting upon him, rather than working in order to rest, we work from our rest that is given to us by sheer grace. So there's that redemptive historical thing that actually preaches the gospel to us. And that's important to trace through scripture. But the Sabbath day itself was given 
with another purpose, you might say a doxological and a restorative purpose. So, so the Sabbath was designed for fellowship with God and for fellowship with God in communion with his people. So it was always the day of sacred assembly. It was always the day of worship. And you see that one of the most remarkable, striking things about the New Testament uh, account is that the day of sacred assembly is not the seventh day, but the first. There's no way, there's no way that Jewish people would fail to gather on the day of uh, sacred worship and assembly, which had been the seventh day since Adam left Eden, um, and begin to, to gather on the first day, unless unless the fundamental principle has shifted in light of the pivot point of history on which everything changes, the cross and resurrection, the empty tomb of our Lord Jesus. So now on, on the Lord's day, we come to gather for sacred assembly, to set apart the whole day for rest and worship, for fellowship with God, for communion with his people. Uh, to be in the Word, it, it, it always helped me as a as a student in in college, as a younger Christian, uh, with all the pressures you know to study and to fill Sunday with busyness because Monday's coming. To to remind myself that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That is to say, the Lord Jesus has ring fenced one day. He said, "Here's this is a day." where I want you to put your pen down, your laptop away, close your books. I want you to, I want you to rest and worship. Here's a day of space, a day where you are required to slow down, to disengage, a day where you get to work on your relationship with me. You know, I think my wife would be rightfully distressed if I were to fail to give regular focused attention to working on the quality of our marriage, God has ring fenced one day in seven and said, that's what that day is for. It's a day for us to go deeper, to draw closer, uh, to climb higher, to see more, to, to, to sweeten your worship, to turn from your sin, to take a beat to take a breath, to disentangle your brain from 24-7 digital blah and, and actually hear my voice. What a precious gift. What a jewel the Lord's Day is when we view it in, in, that, that, in that way. I, there's a really memorable C.S. Lewis quote that I'm sure you've heard endlessly, and I'm rather tired of C.S. Lewis quotes, to be honest. But this is a helpful one, particularly when it comes to uh, the Sabbath day, you know, he, he talks about our problem is not that we love pleasure too much. It's that we are far too easily pleased. Uh, we are like children content to make mud pies in a slum because we cannot believe in the offer of a holiday at the beach. The problem is not that we love pleasure too much. It is that we are far too easily pleased. Why in the world are we saying, I don't want a Sabbath day because I want to go to the movies. I want to 
play soccer. I want to I want to have my life the way I want it. That's mud pies in a slum com- compared with the holiday at the beach available on the Sabbath day under the word with the people of God in fellowship together, resting, turning off the TV, uh, having conversations that last more than however many characters tweet allows you, the, uh, Twitter allows you these days. Um, really having community. You know, I think if we could recover a positive, healthy vision of the Sabbath day in our churches, so much of what we try to accomplish by programs would start to happen organically. You know, we, we're desperate for community these days, aren't we? And rightly so. And it's never been more urgent that we find community as Christians. We need one another especially after lockdown and distancing and all these challenges. We need community. And so we do small groups and we do Sunday school and we, we find ways to do it and praise God for those mechanisms. Let's do that. But I've often thought to myself, you know, if we would just come to church and then invite people into our homes after church, ask them to spend the afternoon with us, uh, you know, just make a, you know, nothing special, make a big pot of spaghetti and say, we've got enough, come on. When you're in our home, you can kick off your shoes and take a nap if you want. We're going to go for a walk later. We're going back to church tonight um, and, and come and hang out and invite an older family and a younger family or a new face. If we would just start to practice positive fellowship and hospitality and on the Lord's Day, so much of what we try to accomplish by programs would start clicking organically in a really beautiful way. One of the things that I think people fixate too much upon with the Sabbath is they think of it only in privative terms. Right. These are things that the Lord takes away from me, but really he gives you on the Lord's day something very unique. He, he calls you into his special presence. Right. And, and to your point about plugging in with your wife, um, you know, I have friends or I'll have people that are unfamiliar with the Sabbath concept and they'll say, why do you do it? For the same reason that I didn't take my laptop or my cell phone on my honeymoon. I'm the, we are the bride of Christ and we get a weekly honeymoon with the bridegroom. And the day is spent not in fixating upon all the things we don't get to do, but what we do get to do on, on the Lord's day. And so how have you, Dr. Strain, you know, there, there's some exegetical ways that we can argue for the abiding validity of the Sabbath. In the Gospel Coalition article, you talk about the difference of hermeneutics, mm-hmm. how Presbyterians and those in the Reformed tradition typically see greater continuity between Old Covenant and New. Yeah. And you go to places like Colossians 2.16, and we kind of exegetically say, look, you know, that the Sabbath that's being mentioned there is not the weekly Sabbath, but a festival like that of the Old Testament. So talk about Christian liberty, if you would, as it relates to the Sabbath and the New Covenant. Yeah. Um, so there are several different issues that we've got to untangle there a little carefully. And, and let me just quickly speak to Christian liberty. I think what's often done is people will go to the Colossians 2 passage and they'll say, See, there was a diversity of opinion in the New Testament church, and so there can be in the church today, and you can keep the Sabbath if you want, but it's not really binding on anyone. 
and so we can have a diversity of opinion and it doesn't matter. Well, that that is not the reformed position. Um, actually, the reformed position is that the Sabbath day, the fourth commandment, is integral not just to the ceremonial but to the moral law. And back of that, it is a creation ordinance and is binding on all people everywhere, not just Christians, actually. And so... <clears throat> Uh, this is what is good for humanity as a as a whole, not just for believers. And uh, you know, you can you can even look in history at attempts at various times to reconfigure the week into like I think at the French Revolution they tried a ten day cycle and it failed miserably. Um, we are hardwired for this weekly rhythm. There's something about it that is that is very ancient for a reason and something about modern life that shatters that rhythm is incredibly destructive. And I think we're seeing the fallout of that as pastors all over the place, all the time in all sorts of ways. Um, and so I, I want to, I want to push back on it and you're not necessarily saying this, uh, Stephen, but uh, anyone who says, you know, the Sabbath is just a matter of difference of opinion and it's all good. Um, I, I would want to say, well, no, I, I'm going to teach in my preaching and teaching and exposition of the scriptures that the fourth commandment is the law of God and it's still the law of God. And the day may have changed. There is a ceremonial component to that. Um, transformed by the work of Christ. Uh, but actually that sweetens it. It makes it more precious and therefore more useful more valuable, more meaningful. We have more direct access to the throne of grace. We have, we have, we have a, a greater fullness of gospel blessing in the new covenant era than in the old. And so there's more available. You know, we, it's, like, it's like a previous generation in this country could never imagine the abundance we have when you walk into a grocery store today. And the, and the sheer variety of options on any given product that you might be looking for. And, and that's like the difference between the old and new covenant. You know, they may have had one option and that's it, you know, and we have, a, we have an array of variegated grace available to us on, on the Lord's day. So on the liberty of conscience, I want to say, we have free consciences to do what God commands, but we are not free to break his commandment. And that means we are all bound to keep the Sabbath day holy. I completely agree. And I bring that in because typically yeah. that is the, I'll say, counter argument. Or in this discussion, people will say, well, what about Christian liberty? But it is very interesting that we don't talk about Christian liberty with the fifth, sixth, seventh, or eighth commandments. And you know that there's a diversity of opinion on these. As you said, it is the law of God. And for some people, this is going to be entirely new, maybe even a bit jarring that I've lived my whole Christian life and I've just been completely unaware. It hasn't been taught to me. I haven't seen it in the scriptures. Perhaps now I'm convinced of the continuity of the old and new covenants. Right. What advice would you give a church member who is just now becoming convinced that they ought to keep the Sabbath, but is unsure 
of where to start. Maybe they're wrestling with guilt and just this daunting, what do I do now? I think before I answer that, I would, I think we should talk about what church officers, elders as a group and pastors should do. Guys, I think it's time we were a lot less embarrassed by the Sabbath and by the teaching of our uh, catechism and confession. I think we should do everything we can to offer a robust, beautiful, attractive, enticing model in our preaching and teaching, and then practice it well ourselves in a, a healthy, positive, affirmative way that is beautiful. I remember long before I really understood the teaching of Scripture on the Sabbath, uh, being around Christians who kept the Sabbath in a, such a beautiful way as a, as a student in college, going to church, and then having church members competing with each other almost to get students to come to their home for lunch. They, were, they had prepared in advance. They've made extra food. They're inviting two or three families each home into their homes with them to spend the whole afternoon. We would go back. There would be a feast, you know, and as a poor student, that was fantastic. There's food as far as the eye can see. And so we would eat till our heart's content. We would sometimes sing hymns and psalms. Sometimes we would have a theological discussion. Somebody would be snoring in the corner, you know, with an open fire. We'd often go for a walk that afternoon. There'd be a lot of laughter, a lot of joking, a lot of connecting and getting to know each other. Um, uh, you know, shoes were kicked off. Um, People were, were really enjoying being together. And then we'd all bundle into the cars and go back to evening worship. And then often there would be more fellowship in someone's home that night and, and still more food, you know, maybe the leftovers from, from lunch from someone else's home. And I, I remember as a student, you know, working hard, I'm away from home, I'm missing my family, living for Sundays. I didn't, it never occurred to me, oh, I'm missing a movie on TV or, you know, I, I really just want to, you know, play a video game or, you know, go play sport. I, I was, that was what I, I wanted that. The Lord's Day was a happy disease that I was infected with long before I understood the theology that reinforced it so that I would urge Christians to keep the day like that even if they do not believe that Sunday is the Sabbath day, because it was such a health-giving, soul-nourishing, happy reality for me. And I have to say that in the American church, more rapidly than in the United Kingdom, but in the UK now as well, that dynamic that I grew up with, that I saw being practiced in such a positive way, has almost disappeared. And so pastors and elders, you need to put your heads together to think creatively, not just about how to teach it, but how to model it yourselves. Have a rotation in your church of people ready every Lord's Day to bring people home and tell them you're welcome to stay for all of the afternoon and come back to evening worship with us. Practice morning and evening worship. It's hard to keep the whole day separate and distinct when you have an hour of gathered corporate worship. It really helps. I'm not making that a law. I don't think I can bind anyone's conscience from scripture to say you must have morning and evening worship. But I do think 
the the teaching of the church across the ages and personal and pastoral experience teaches the wisdom of bracketing the day morning and evening with the sacred assembly of God's people. That's really helpful. And then to someone who's starting out as a Christian themselves, it depends a little on whether they have children or not, what that will look like, whether they're married or not, what that will look like. It may also depend a little bit on, um, you know, their various entanglements. They may have employment issues. They may have uh, commitments that they have made and they've come to this conviction and they cannot easily disentangle themselves from those commitments. I would want to say that we need to exercise a great deal of charity and patience and liberty there as people struggle in contemporary life to to align their practice with their convictions. It's not always a simple, easy thing. You can't just flick the switch and and do this. You've got to. It's like someone trying to figure out how do I how do I give generously. You know, I think the New Testament principle is sacrificial generosity, which should be more than a tithe, um, uh, but not usually less than a tithe. Um, but if you've never given like that, you may not be able to just suddenly do it. You may have debt and all sorts of mess you've made financially. And so there's got to be some incrementalism here. Um, we do have to discipline our own hearts not to let ourselves off the hook too easily. Um, and not to say, well, if this is the law of God, but, you know, I can't really pull it off, so it doesn't matter. That means I can also now go to the movies and, you know, sit on a lake with a fishing rod in my hand. And and people also, well, that's what I find restful. So now I'm keeping the Sabbath and I want to go. The measure of rest has to be the scriptural definition, not your private experience. This is not a subjective category. It's an objective one. You're to rest from all your other lawful employments to engage in sacred uh, things. And rest is unto worship, right? You know, is, our rest is unto. On Christ and unto God and rest from dead works to the living and true God, not whatever I find to be personally restorative. That means a soccer match or the latest Hollywood blockbuster, you know, or, you know, three hours uh, doing retail therapy. That's what I'll do. That's not Sabbath keeping. <laughs> and we can, let's not be Pharisees. That's Phariseeism, not strict obedience, but the sort of casuistry that we're employing there to say, well, we believe in the Sabbath, but we can do whatever we like. N no. If you have children, one of my encouragements would be uh, to teach your children the Ten Commandments, the Apostles' Creed, the Lord's Prayer, uh, early, get them to recite it even when they can't understand it. We still have a little video of my oldest son when he was about four or five saying the Lord's Prayer and mangling the words in a sort of cutesy way. And it just, you know, it, it, it brings me to tears seeing him doing it as a little as a little boy so that you're equipping them for Sunday worship. And then when they come home from church over dinner, talk a bit about church if it's possible and your church uh, allows this, I would encourage children to be in worship. Um, you know, sometimes very young children need to have some provision made for them. But as soon as they're able to sit through a service, I would encourage you to have them with you as a family. Um, and we need to help our churches 
be be okay with that and and excited for that and then have some games and some food maybe candy maybe there's a, a, a you know a sabbath appropriate movie that they can put on have some things in a in a sunday box and they're not allowed to access that on any other day but sunday and make it something they love although i got to say when our kids were small and we would have people in our home on the lord's day if there was a Sunday that passed and we didn't have someone home, they were really disappointed because they had people talking to them and playing games with them and adults from when we were in London from all over the world um, who were just fascinating and engaging. And it was, it was a lot of fun and they loved all of that. And they got a lot of attention, you know, as little kids, they just loved it. So they, they didn't need the box, and but sometimes they're sick or something and you can put on a child's Christian thing on the TV or, you know, when Sheena, my wife, was ill or something. And, you know, but have some Sunday things. Read to them. How about that? Get the, the beautiful Crossway edition of Pilgrim's Progress with those extraordinary pictures in there. If you've not seen it, it's amazing. Get down on the floor with your kids and read some of that to them. Or read something else, but read things that are going to talk to them about their souls, about the Lord's. Make it beautiful and fun and attractive so that they don't grow up thinking Sunday was this dreadful day when we were not allowed to do anything. And it, you know, it was quiet in the house and we weren't allowed to play and we weren't allowed to speak and we were just, you know, go into your room and close the door and be silent. And it was like being in prison. If your kids grow up with that, you are you're you're training them to hate the Sabbath day. Well, as we wrap up here, one thing that we talk about here at the shorter is continuing the conversation. You know, just you know, as Stephen has already pointed out, this is a a new concept or a concept that's kind of assumed. You know, they just know Sunday's coming and they just kind of follow the crowd, as it were. Uh, so, what are some resources that you would give our audience to maybe read or? to listen to as they continue to think through the Sabbath and discuss it with their friends? Um, so th- the book that helped me first was Walter Chantry's Call the Sabbath a Delight that I think is still printed by the Banner of Truth. It's not long. This is my old, dusty, you know, terrible 1970s cover edition of it. Um, that was, was the apex of printing the 70s, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> That was when graphic designers really knew what they were doing. Um, uh, this book I found helpful, more recent edition, PNR, Bruce Ray Celebrating the Sabbath. That's good. Uh, Joseph Piper has a little book on the Sabbath that's helpful. Um, if you're if you're you know, if you want something to help you sleep on a Sunday afternoon, <laughs> uh, this big fat book, uh, The True Doctrine of the Sabbath by Nicholas Bounds will be an effective anesthetic and uh, <laughs> put you under it's it's exhaustive um and and then one other thing that's shorter that you can find for free online it's not directly on the sabbath but is about worship which if the purpose of the sabbath is the glory of god is is glorifying and enjoying god then, then it will really help us love the Lord's Day and call the Sabbath of the light to value public worship more. And so David Clarkson's extraordinary sermon, uh, Reasons Why Public Worship 
is to be preferred before private uh, is an absolute must read. It's not long. It's classically Puritan. And so there's lots of, you know, subordinate clauses and many, many uses and all of that. Uh, but it is magnificent. I'll just give you one little quote from it. He says, um, the Lord has a stream that flows to every Christian severally. And on the Lord's day, those streams are joined together to become a mighty river that makes glad the city of our God. Uh, the Lord has a dish for every several Christian, a dish of his presence. And on the Lord's day, those many dishes are joined together to become a feast. Um, and I just, that's fantastically Puritan. And I love it because it's saying what you get on your own is vital, but it's nothing compared to the promises of God that attend the assembly of his people on the day he's ordained. Um, and if you get that piece and, and then you start to wrestle with the catechism's teaching, and I mean, the catechism's a good place to start. Follow the scripture proofs. Read the confession. Uh, go get Chad Van Dixhorn's uh, little usable commentary on the Westminster Confession. Really accessible, not complex. Um, and or, or, or R.C. Sproul's Truths We Confess. And follow the argument. And once you've got these convictions in place, go to your pastor, go to your elders and say, help me do this. Uh, how, how can I help others do this? Uh, one last thing I'd say is, once you become convinced of this, be careful of the cage stage. Um, you know, evangelists for Sabbatarianism can sometimes become really difficult to deal with. And, uh, you know, in the church that I serve, we have a whole array of opinions amongst our staff, amongst our elders, and amongst our congregation. And so I'm going to preach and teach um, on this subject every chance I get, whenever it's appropriate from the text, forcefully and I hope winsomely, but I am, I'm not coming down on anybody who doesn't line up with me. I want to persuade rather than, you know, so ministerial authority is precisely that. It's ministerial and declarative, right? It's not coercive. It's not punitive. We want to persuade. Um, so, so we may have to sort of sell the doctrine of the Sabbath and then tell people who get it to take a chill pill and, and you know, go slow and be gracious to others who remember they're as confused as you used to be and they need help too. Um, yeah. And the Sabbath is sweet as honey, but let's not pitch it like it's vinegar, you know? Um, well, Dr. Strain, I'm excited for the Lord's Day now. I know Tommy is too. And hopefully for our listeners, um, this prepares your hearts for corporate worship uh, this coming Sunday. And, you know, as Dr. Strain said, talk to your elders, talk to other families in the church, work together to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. So Dr. Strain, thanks for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you, fellas. And it's always a pleasure to have our listeners join us. Thanks again. We look forward to talking with you next time. Till then, keep it short. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and
Oh